walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to episode 16 of the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Whitson, and I have a confession to make. I'm not a musically inclined person. I don't sing. I don't play any instruments. I don't have an iPod. And I don't generally listen to music much in my daily life. I know, it's weird. But I also know that music is important to many people on pilgrimage, and this manifests itself in lots of different ways. Some people sing while walking, some of them very loudly when they think they're alone and out of earshot. Some rely on their iPods to help get them in the right mood or rhythm while walking. Others hope to find a guitar in the albergue to while away the evening. Many look forward to Vespers for the evening songs in the church along the way. Lots of different interests, lots of different ways to engage musically. So music can play a part in one's Camino in lots of different ways. A distraction or valued accompaniment to the walk, a meditative means to process the daily's experiences, a spiritual support, a creative force to reimagine the walk, or something that's just fun. Today, I'm speaking with three pilgrims whose musical Caminos have taken very different shape. First, Ellen Waterston of Bend, Oregon, speaks with me about the upcoming world premiere of her Camino opera, Via Lactea. Do you live in the Pacific Northwest? If so, plan to be in Bend from June 10th through 12th. Second, Dane Johansson of New York, a highly acclaimed cellist, shares stories from his experience in May 2014, in which he walked the Camino with his cello on his back and performed in churches along the way. Finally, I speak with Frederick Shepard of Green Bay, Wisconsin, a great guitarist, about the series of concerts that he coordinates along the Meseta through Camino Artes. Are you walking the Camino Francais this summer? If so, plan to catch one of these concerts along the way. That's the plan for episode 16, Oregon, Wisconsin, and New York. Thanks as always for listening, and enjoy. Ellen Waterston is the author of Via Lactea, A Woman of a Certain Age Walks the Camino, a verse novel on the Camino de Santiago that has now been developed into an opera, a Camino opera. Thanks for talking with me about this exciting development, Ellen. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Um, what first drew you to the Camino de Santiago? Well, I had heard about it from really from one friend in particular. I live in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lives uh, on the east coast of the United States, and uh, she had gone a number of times, and it was really before the Camino became kind of a household word. Uh, subsequent to Martin Sheen being in the way and Mm -hmm. lots of other sort of publicity, it's now something many, many people are more aware of than they were. Um, But it was something that she put in my imagination, and I kind of filed it away. And uh, when I was passing the baton from um, a literary arts nonprofit that I started and ran for 12 years, Mm -hmm. I thought it it would be a good time to take some time and figure out next steps uh, walking the Camino. Mm-hmm. That's great. And out of that came your your novel, your verse novel, and, and now the opera. So I'm, I'm curious what, in your mind, makes the Camino and pilgrimage more generally a, a rich subject for opera? You know, I think that the, the you, you know whatever it is you want to talk about you need to figure out a good container as a writer <laughs> i think mm-hmm. and so um and and the simpler the container the better mm-hmm. especially if it is in the case of the verse novel and now now the opera you're dealing with pretty big issues such as spirituality versus religion mm-hmm. or 
too much self-analysis versus too much lack of self-analysis <laughs> or the fact that I happen to see all of us in our lives as a uh, kind of metaphor mm. and that all, all of us, all aspects of self are represented in the characters that are in the verse novel and the opera, really, mm-hmm. or represent characters that we're all familiar with anyway. <laughs> so if people can suspend disbelief and approach it that way, the Camino, because it starts somewhere and it goes somewhere, is a good vehicle for carrying on a story. What was the genesis of Via Lactea? Did you set out with the goal of writing an opera, or did the idea just develop more gradually over time? No, I mean, when I walked the Camino, I had no intention of <laughs> writing about the experience at all. In mm-hmm. fact, really, the thought was, as I uh, was sort of sorting out next steps, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. that I would figure out what long-delayed writing projects I could finally get back to, um, <laughs> having given up the position at their literary nonprofit. And so so the thought of writing about it really was one of those moments. Having completed the, the trek and returned to the United States, I was sorting through receipts and brochures, and I came upon a brochure that had a little, tiny, sort of two-by-two two map at the top of it that sketched the 10 main Camino routes that converge in Santiago. Hmm. There are people, people say, did you walk the Camino? Well, there are many Caminos, and this map, to me, looked like the stick figure outline of a woman leaping. And in my imagination, she became Camino woman, who is one of the main characters in the verse novel and the opera, as the embodiment of spiritual women who have been sidelined by patriarchal religions over time. Hmm. So when I saw that little sketch, I thought, great, you know, there she is. She, she, this little map, she was leaping across Spain, um, and she shows up in both the verse novel and the opera as somebody with uh, a bit of an axe to grind relative to the presence of quote, religion and patriarchal religion, which in the, um, in the verse novel is, is represented as the Catholic Church through a character named Father Tomas. Uh, but it, it really embraces the, the debate between spirituality and religion in any way, shape, or form. Hmm. That's interesting. So it, it, is that the, the core tension in the opera, the tension between spirituality and organized religion? Well, it's one of the core tensions. Another is, you know, when you walk the Camino, um, you you get to Santiago, and in the old days, the reason the scallop shell is the symbol of walking the Camino is that ancient pilgrims would go on to the coast, to the, to the Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. and in those days, way, you know, it was perceived that that was literally the end of the earth. Mm-hmm. And so they, they would walk to the end of the earth, confront it, pick up a scallop shell to show they'd been there, and go back to their villages. Mm-hmm. And so another one of the main themes in this is what false endings or false limitations do you and I and everybody have? I mean, what, are, what do you perceive as being the end of your earth when it really isn't? And what do I perceive as being a limitation to my skills, whatever they may be, that really aren't? That's, that's the main theme. Another one is the issues that are confronting single older women. Hmm. And there are many, many of us, and the, the, you know, more than perhaps ever in history. And there are, there are a lot of the issues that that group or has to confront uh, are taken up in the, uh, in the opera. You mentioned Camino Woman. You mentioned Father Tomas. Who are some of the other characters that feature in, in, this, in this opera? Well, there's Peregrina that is the, the, the sort of lead character, okay. that, who, by the way, is being sung by the renowned Emily Pulley, uh, who is sung with the Met and all over the world. So we're very, very lucky to have her in the lead. Wow. Um, and, and Peregrina is the one who you could 
see as guilty of too much self-analysis. <laughs> there is another character who is constantly happy and positive, Peggy. Mm-hmm. There is a salacious sort of German guy who uh, is sort of stereotypical of, you know, a slightly predatory male, particularly on women of a certain age. And and so th- there's some issues that are underscored by his role. He's also, um, as is Peggy, they both provide a lot of comic relief. <laughs> there is the role of Peregrino, who is potential romantic interest for Peregrina, and that isn't, it's not clear. I mean, it doesn't wrap up tidily in a sort of happily ever after kind of a way. Mm-hmm. That's sort of left, um, left as a question. So we have a chorus of 12 in the opera, a boys' chorus of five, there are seven principals, and um, five dancers. So it's a big production as a world premiere. Wow. Yeah. It, that's There's a lot of moving pieces there. Tell uh, me just about like it. A, just like a Camino, I suppose. Is this autobiographical? Is this Are these the people that you met on your Camino? Does, like, how does your own Camino fit into this opera? Well, my own Camino fits in that, that experience and then finding that funny little map kind mm-hmm. of was like this this trajectory into writing about it. So my own experience shaped it that way. And clearly, I am the woman of a certain age. I mean, it was it was uh, those issues that were were and are of interest to me. They really are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that they're they're being talked about that much. Also, my own Camino experience would would definitely be present in the questions that were raised for me in terms of the very significant uh, presence of the Catholic Church in Spain and, well, you know, throughout Europe and pretty much uh, everywhere um, relative to some refer to as just more spiritual, so the structure of religion versus spirituality. So, yes, they came out of my experience, but I have to say that Every character, as I mentioned earlier, is a composite of people that I know and you know and we all know. And that my, my goal is that with this telling, we see aspects of ourselves in all the characters and see our lives as a Camino and mm-hmm. apprehend our fault endings and limitations and maybe laugh some more, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the answer to your question is yes to both. Yes, the experience inspired the writing and then... Uh, is it autobiographical? Well, I mean, I really think that the, the questions posed are shared, you know, by many mm-hmm. and represented by this character. And again, I think that's the function of writing. I've always felt like pilgrimage is a challenging subject to document in film because an essential part of the experience is the rhythm of walking, the daily meditative routine. And Compared with a stage production, films at least have the advantage of assembling montages of the walk. You can piece together a bunch of sequential images of walking across different um, settings. Uh, How can you or or do you even try to replicate that physical aspect of the experience in a stage production? Yes, uh, we are. The chorus will spend a lot of time... Um, in the background doing a sort of Marcel Marceau walk. <laughs> and we're, develop, we're developing, you know, structures that suggest ups and downs and mountains and that sort of thing. <laughs> and there, there will be a lot of choreographed attention to hurting feet and blisters and that sort of thing. So, yeah, we want to we wanna create the feeling of, of this long walk. And a lot of the uh, verse and and now in the libretto addresses that. Mm. But you're absolutely right. It's a challenge to stage it and how this will, given that this whole darn thing is a world premiere, how how we <laughs> succeed is yet to be seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the process been like of seeing your your verse novel turned into a script and the script brought to life? What What has that been like for you? Well, I wrote the libretto myself, so I was still up close and personal with the process at that stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, from that point forward, it gets interesting. 
because it's really, you know, watching your this baby you birth get farther and farther and farther away um, because you have the layer of, of the composer's interpretation mm-hmm. and then you have the uh, interpretation of the singers themselves with the overlay of the director's interpretation. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are many, many layers, not to mention, you know, the, the more subtle ones, such as what does the set look like and does the message get carried across and that sort of thing. So it's, it's both, well, it's very much like parenting, which is that it's thrilling and horrifying and scary all at once. Uh, because, you know, you you can sit back and think, well, wait, wait, no, that wasn't really the way I wanted that to look or feel or sound. But in the end, this this extraordinary collaboration is producing something much, much bigger and much more embracing than the the, uh, simple first novel could possibly have done. Mm. You mentioned the female lead, but for those familiar with opera, who are some of the other names in the cast and crew that they might be familiar with? Jocelyn Claire Thomas, mm-hmm. uh, Hannah Penn, Chad Johnson, and Zachary Lennox, Jason Stein. I think those are all the the principal singers. Mm-hmm. Hannah Penn is beloved by the Portland Opera. Uh, she lives in the Northwest, so she is um, a frequent performer in the Northwest as well as elsewhere in the United States and Europe. Jocelyn Claire Thomas and Zachary Lennox, the same, although he has just moved here to Oregon from Atlanta, of fabulous voices, all of them. I mean, the fact mm. that they would agree to do this very experimental new work is nobody's more surprised and delighted than I. <laughs> And for those in the Pacific Northwest, it's worth just highlighting all of the specifics. So this is going to be taking place in Bend, Oregon. It's on June 10th through 12th at the Tower Theater. And what else should people know if they're interested in checking out the world premiere of Via Lactea? Well, they can go to towertheater.org for tickets. Mm -hmm. They can go to www.writingranch.org if they want to read more about uh, the background and evolution of the opera, much of what we've covered today. Mm-hmm. And yeah, put on your fancy dress, although it's not necessary, and come. <laughs> Certainly not in Bend, Oregon. I, that's not not sort of the feature dress. But but I will. I do want to just add that Bend, Oregon, because we're working with Opera Bend, mm-hmm. their founders are the music director and director. Opera Bend provided the Umbrella nonprofit. The composer has since moved permanently to Bend over the process of doing all of this composition. Yeah. Um, I'm here, and the community it has come together, and we have raised a quarter of a million dollars to do it. Wow. So it's a very big undertaking in a not-all-that-big community, mm-hmm. but the arts are, are very, very strongly supported and I think it's going to put Opera Bend or give it a, a, a more, a, a bigger profile, really, as a cultural asset in Central Oregon. So there's a lot going on at once, that's for sure. <laughs> for those not in the Pacific Northwest, what's your hope? Are you looking to grow this, to have this move to other locales? How does an opera grow from a, a local production to something larger and more accessible to a wider audience? Well, all of this. All of this has been a very steep learning curve for me. Yeah. But what we have tried, we have tried to invite representatives from medium-sized opera companies to attend the opening, such as Wichita, Fort Collins, Eugene, Portland, Astoria, Boston is sending a representative. So they'll be here. I, I gather the process is that after this, the composer will take the notes from the singers and the orchestra itself incorporate them into the music, any kind of challenging sort of word order that that we hadn't caught in advance, the singers will be helping us figure those out. So essentially workshopping it a bit and then hoping that both by distributing some drives left, right, and center, as well as uh, having gotten the attention of what we're calling these opera scouts, that it will be staged somewhere else. Of course, that's our greatest, greatest hope. That's great. 
Well, as you know, Ellen, those who have walked the Camino, those who have experienced it in some form remain very much attached to it and like to continue to, you know, consume it in new forms upon returning home. So I'm sure you're going to find a very receptive audience and a and an audience that is is very much invested in the in the stories that you're telling. Well, and if you're any of your listeners who are not in the Northwest and and aren't able to come, want to contact me or the the opera itself for a thumb drive and to see what it looked like, how we did. Uh, we'd be happy to to send them out. That's awesome. I'm sure you're going to hear from some people. So uh, thank Good. you for that. Great. Thank you for uh, for speaking with me. And uh, I hope that the world premiere is just a great success. Thanks ever so much. Dane Johansson is an American cellist who has performed around the world and has been praised for his brave virtuosity and staggering aplomb. He has performed on five continents and more than 20 countries, and one of those is Spain, and we're going to hear more about that. Thanks for speaking with me, Dane. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on here. Let's start really broad. What do you love about the cello? Well, I've always really loved the sound of the cello and um, and the feeling of playing the cello, the resonance that it generates, and um, it's a very it's a very physical instrument. You know, it's a large instrument, so I love the um, the sort of more muscular approach to hmm. that instrument than I imagine I would have to a violin or a smaller instrument than the cello. Um, and then the the depth of the sound and the range of of um, of the different timbres and, and colors that you can get from a cello is, I think, what's most captivating to me. Take me back to May 2014, when maybe the size of the cello wasn't quite as nice. Um, like many who are listening, you journeyed to the Camino de Santiago, but your walk was a little different from others. What was your vision behind that pilgrimage? Well, so I, I did indeed carry my cello um, <laughs> on the Camino de Santiago, and it was you know, the size actually wasn't so much an issue. I was carrying so little as I, I mean, I would recommend any pilgrim to uh, anybody who walks that route to carry as little as possible because it's going to really help your knees and ankles. But mm -hmm. I was carrying a cello. So I had the cello <laughs> and very minimal other articles. Um, and my weight, because I, because I kept that down so, so much or as much as I possibly could, my weight was about the same as somebody with a, a well-stocked backpack. So, wow. So it really wasn't so bad for me. Um, the I think the more difficult thing about carrying the cello was just that it wasn't a backpack kind of tightly formed to my my body and you know in a compact shape. It was you know a pretty large object to be carrying. So in the windier sections of the Camino, I think it was probably more difficult mm -hmm. in that way. And then in general, just hiking with something that's not really really centered and and kind of helping you keep your center of gravity low is going to be more difficult to carry. So, but it was, it was, you know, it was, it was worth the effort because I was the only guy that got to, you know, play, <laughs> play music in churches along the way um, during my Camino experience. So that was, that was awesome. Why were you doing that? What inspired you to walk with your cello? Well, actually I had a friend who was telling me about a, a an adventure that he'd taken. This is way back in 2008. Mm -hmm. um, and he had walked the Appalachian trail here in the United States Mm -hmm. and had written music along the way. He actually wrote 81 Movements for String Quartet um, about his experience on the Appalachian Trail. So when he was telling me about that, I was just really captivated by the idea of combining a physical journey and that sort of physical experience with a musical one. And mm -hmm. so the Bach cello suites have been really important to me pretty much for my whole life as a cellist. And so I, I was look. I had been looking for sort of a a, a different way to approach those, and a, and a different way to approach deepening my connection to that music. So I thought, well, it'd be awesome to do some some sort of similar journey with those pieces of music and my cello. Hmm. And so then I found the Camino de Santiago and started thinking about you know how to make that happen. And it was a process about of about six years of of thinking about it and planning it and then, you know, really trying to work out all the logistics behind not only going there with my cello, but going there with a crew of 10 people and hmm. with all the equipment that we needed to make a film and to record all the concerts that I played along the way, I ended up playing 36 
concerts and churches along the way. So that was um, quite an undertaking. And yeah, so that's from that inspiration in 2008 that began very simply, the the idea kind of grew and grew and became larger and larger as it, as it included more people. And, but it also became, I think, better and better. You've played in some of the world's great spaces, Carnegie Hall, Concert House Berlin, Kennedy Center. How different is it playing in a church? And what's distinct about playing in that setting as opposed to a, a concert hall? Well, playing in a church, usually you're dealing, in a, in a concert hall, usually you're dealing with different materials like wood. Generally, you're dealing with wood in a concert hall or concrete or, you know, materials that have been designed or used in a, in a specific way to tailor the acoustics of that space uh, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a church, I think that they probably also had an idea as to what they wanted the acoustics of that space to be when they were building it. But mm-hmm. I think those, you know, especially the churches along the Camino, they were all built with stone and were very resonant because of that. I guess I did run into a few churches along the way that had a lot of wood, for example, on the floor or, or in, in carvings on the walls and, and things like that. But by and large, the churches were made of stone. So the resonance was much more wet, as, mm-hmm. we, as we say when we talk about acoustics that are very resonant. Those stone walls reflected the sound um, in such a way as to make the reverb um, a lot longer, sometimes up to like, um, I would say probably up to almost 10 seconds sometimes. So it was a, in some ways, those were challenging spaces to play in um, comparatively to a concert hall. A concert hall has really been designed to be optimal, um, whereas a church is, is usually just, uh, you know, I, I don't think that they put quite as much uh, thought into the acoustics or maybe they're looking, you know, when they were designing those churches back in the 1200s, maybe they were <laughs> thinking about how, how wonderful that resonance was and maximizing that reverberation. So, but anyway, I'd, I'd say that, that, that the, uh, the churches are very challenging to play in by comparison. And that was a, that was a very interesting feature of all the performances I gave along the Camino for me personally, I just had to really let those spaces affect the way that I was playing my instrument and affect the way that I was interpreting my Bach's music so that it would sound good in the space. You know, by that, I mean that I had to make adjustments to the, the way that I was playing the cello physically. And I also had to make uh, changes in a way that I was um, playing with time that in a larger, more resonant space, I always had to allow for more time for the music to sort of breathe and resolve, hmm. um, or else I would just get too much overlap, you know, in the different phrases and ideas. Is there a particular performance or church that stands out in your mind from the experience, just for the way that it went, or how you felt while performing there? Yes, the um, the Iglesia de San Martin in Fromista mm-hmm. was definitely one of my favorite churches. It was a um, a Roman church and uh and just beautifully proportioned it had lots of arches and um on the uh all the proportions of those arches were were very purposefully and beautifully designed and um the sound of the somehow the sound of that church it was very resonant but it wasn't wasn't like a glassy resonance it was very warm and soft almost like a softer stone Hmm. was used to build it i just remember that space being a particularly inspiring place to play music. Um, and it was also one of the more inspiring churches visually, particularly because it's one of the churches along the Camino that's still decorated in the Roman style. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it, it hasn't been updated through the centuries with different um, Baroque decorations, as many of the other churches along the Camino have been updated. This one is very much the way it was when they built it. And I prefer, personally, I prefer that aesthetic. At least it's, I think, more interesting to be in a space that, that is the way its, it's, um, its makers intended it to be, rather than a space that's been sort of updated through the centuries. So, so that was a particularly beautiful and inspiring space to play in. And, and actually, that, uh, rec- one of the recordings from that performance is featured in a particularly beautiful scene of the film that we ended up producing about our experience there. So, Yeah, let's talk about the film. A documentary is being produced out of the experience, The Walk to Fistera, A Cellist's Journey. So where is that in the production process, and when might people be able to look forward to seeing it? Well, so that was the original title of the film. Okay. Um, during our production process, we've actually decided to change the title of the film. Okay. Um, because the, the film really ended up being more about 
I mean, I'm a character in the film and the music is a character in the film. And I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably the most principal character that you can follow through the film, but because we got so many rich and interesting interviews from people that we met along the way, we decided to tell the story of that experience through the experience of many people. Hmm. And so what you'll hear is sort of a, uh, what you'll experience in the film is the story of the Camino de Santiago and the story of, of having that experience as told by multiple people. Um, and all of these different perspectives weave together to create a much more compelling and a much more, I think, complete perspective as to what you know, your experience might be if you, if you were to walk the Camino. So that being said, we had to change the title from <laughs> the Walk to Fistera Cellist Journey to something that was more appropriate for the film. So we actually ended up going with a title called, uh, we decided to call the film Strangers on the Earth. And that title actually comes from the idea that uh, there's actually a biblical passage where pilgrims are being described as strangers on the earth. Mm. And so that's where we got the title. We also had a, a, an interview with a German pilgrim who does nothing but walk, not only on the Camino de Santiago, but different ancient paths throughout Europe. That's just what he does. So he's actually like a, you know, like a real, a real pilgrim, not just somebody... <laughs> Um, as he says in his interview, um, not just somebody taking a holiday on the pilgrim way, but a real pilgrim. And, um, and he describes the feeling of being a pilgrim as one of being a stranger in the land. So that, that was the, where we, you know, kind of where we got the title. And I, I'm, I think it's a much more fitting title for the, the product that we created. What's the timeline for the film? When might people see it? So we are submitting the film to film festivals right now, currently. Mm -hmm. um, and those festivals should begin um, as early as August of 2016. The film is complete now, um, but it won't be released publicly until we, you know, we've done a, a run of film festivals with it and until we've secured some kind of distribution for the film. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the way that we're going to distribute and release the film has yet to be seen, but um, it is a finished product. There will be opportunities to see it at different film festivals around the world. So, um, and of course, that that information will be on our website and available as it as it kind of comes in. <laughs> <laughs> Last question: Did this experience walking with your cello, performing along the way, did it change you as a musician at all? Yes, I think I think it did. I think I think it changed me in some very fundamental ways as a person. Um, it affected some pretty fundamental changes in the way that I was thinking about my life with music. When I went on the Camino, when I, when I started this whole project, the initial idea was that I was going to make a, a recording of the Bach cello suites in these churches along the way, which I did. But the process of making that recording was very, very different than what I initially hoped for and designed. When, when we got to Spain, the recording sessions that we'd worked out with all these churches were really more like public concerts. And mm -hmm. so there would be, you know, sometimes hundreds of people there listening to the music. And it was, you know, pretty much pointless to try to make a studio quality recording <laughs> in these churches because of all the activity. So my thinking about the whole project had to change immediately. And I just had to really accept that I wasn't going to be able to make this recording um, in the way that I'd initially planned. And that sort of started me on, you know, the process of questioning my motives behind the project, because of course I was frustrated initially that it wasn't going to go exactly the way I'd planned and um, that maybe the product was going to be very different than I'd anticipated. Mm -hmm. So I had to, I, I went through a process of, of being a little bit frustrated and having to change the way that I was thinking about the project. I think that I, I had to acknowledge that my initial designs were, were pretty ego driven and, and I was just trying to trying to do something kind of, I mean, I, I think, I think it was a great idea and I think it had noble, uh, it was a noble pursuit, but I, I do think that the, the idea was one that I was hoping was going to help my career in certain ways and whatnot. And, and what I saw was that the experience was going to be something that helped me become a musician that was, more focused on giving people music and providing people with an experience that was going to improve their day or their time on the Camino, you know? So that actually really enriched the purpose and driving force behind my Camino mm -hmm. in that it became about 
the other people that I was sharing this music with and not about making my recording. Right. So it just, you know, that really made the experience much more rich for me personally and really affected the way that I think about my life with music now, as I've continued to make music and, and um, pursue a career following my time in the Camino, I've always had that in, in mind that, you know, that that's the principal object for me is to provide beauty to people and hopefully that that beauty helps them access emotions and thoughts and feelings about themselves and, and, and their lives and their purpose and that that music can be a, a positive uh, force of, of change. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know if it's working, but you know, that that's kind of how my <laughs> thought process is, has, has developed because of my time on the Camino. Frederick Shepard is a doctor, a custom guitar maker, and most important for our purposes, he spearheads the Camino Artes initiative on the Camino Frances. Camino Artes is responsible for organizing a series of concerts primarily, but not exclusively, on the Meseta each summer. As Frederick describes, his personal connection to the Camino is a particularly profound one built on the back of two powerful coincidences. I was headed for my first Camino and really literally had my backpack at the front door about 7.40 in the morning and was headed to the airport. The taxi had been called and I had my hand on the backpack and I had my other hand on the doorknob and the telephone rings. Turn on your television. September 11th, 2001. So obviously I wasn't going anywhere. When I arrived on the Camino, I saw things that no American or no, nobody in the Western world would see because it was never covered. All of the aircraft that were going to start that war flew over Spain and walking from east to west, of course, 11 airplanes in the sky, 15 minutes later, 11 more, night and day and night and day and night and day. Well, I'm a kind of a peace-loving guy, right? So I'm out on the Camino, you know, jumping up and down, go back, not with my tax money, oh, really, don't do this. Well, I came to the realization that I had no power really to affect those kinds of things. I started thinking, well, what can I do? What, what, what is one thing that I can do to sort of counteract this mentality of terrorism and this horrible thing that's happened? And you know, I'm a lifelong lover of guitar and very serious high-end music. You know, I keep going by empty churches. And at the end of every day, everybody's had their siesta and they've had their shower and they've you know, wash their socks, and if you don't want to watch football and sit in a bar, what is there to do? So I thought to myself, what if, what if you brought a guitarist, put a sign in front of the church, saw what happened? Well, it took actually two more Caminos, and I couldn't do it on my own. Eventually, I met a Mexican diplomat who was a guitarist in Brussels, Belgium, married to a member of the Berlusconi family from Rome, who knew a priest in the Vatican who had gone to art school with the curator of religious art in our province, a priest, and they made the connection. I flew there right away. He said, well, what do you want to do? And I told him, and he said, well, okay, we're going to give you an apartment for one year. We'll give you the keys to all the churches, and boom, it happened. But actually, when I was in the formative stages of this process, you know, I went back and I would tell my business people and accountants and lawyers and all those people, you know, that doctor people have in their life. And, you know, they got really tired of hearing this story. You know, I want, you know, I want to do this thing. I just want. They finally just said, you know, would you just please leave for a month because you're driving us crazy and just get out. You know, we're going to give you a month. Just get out of here. Do your thing. Get this out of your system and leave us alone because we're tired of hearing about it. So, you know, I decide to go low season. There I am. Same backpack, same flight. I got my hand on the backpack. I got my hand on the doorknob. The telephone rings. Turn on your television. That was March 11, 2004, the Madrid train bombings. My mind was made up. That was such a clear sign to me that I had, what's, what's the chance of this happening? It, it's impossible. It can't be. It can't be. I'm a science guy. You can't explain this to me. So I went back and, and did a Camino mostly in the snow, 
it, it galvanized me to continue on with this, you know, crazy dream. And uh, concert number 383 will be on Wednesday. And we've done concerts from Roncesvalles all the way to the cathedral in Santiago. We're bringing in some additional help. We want to start concerts in Eunate. I'm trying to get permission to have some kind of a permanent program in Roncesvalles. Because people coming over that mountain, I've been there. For many people, they've planned for months or years. And they've made tremendous sacrifices to get there. And that first day, they have such high expectations. But when they come into that church, which is an incredible experience to begin with, when there's live music in there, it just takes them into an out-of-body. It's just, it's just an out-of-body. It's just something tremendous. And I, to my dying day, I will do everything I can to make this thing flourish. Frederick explains what makes the connection between music and pilgrimage so powerful. What do we see? We see angels with instruments, and we don't hear anything. It's like, dude, where's the music? So I'm trying to take these spaces that seem, for many people, especially people from the North America who've never been in a church that's a thousand years old, to get them to get a feeling of what this was really like in the Middle Ages. And so far we have put on 381 free concerts. That's a lot of concerts, man. But I've just made a promise to myself, I'm, go I'm going for a thousand. It may kill me. How has the project grown over time from its initial vision to its current form? Where did you start? So imagine if we could harness all of the creative abilities of these people who have really had a change in their life because of the Camino, and they had a place where they could actually come back here and live and work and not go broke. That's kind of, you know, it's an important thing because a lot of these artists don't have the capital to come here and stay. And so we've kind of, this kind of is acting like kind of an incubator. And it has become this kind of spontaneous thing. Well, all the concerts nearly are full. Hmm. Uh, we have guitarists from Russia, Ukraine, Vietnam, Singapore, South Africa, Paraguay, Argentina, Uruguay, U.S., Canada, Norway, Turkey, Iran. So that's basically our program. And every year I seem to be given something else. So now we've been given our own church. I have what amounts to a, a lifetime contract for the restoration of a 13th century church for small, intimate, candlelight concert. And the church needs restoration. So we're asking, I get in there and I basically beg. Uh, I tell people what we're trying to do and I just give them an opportunity. The concerts are all free. We ask nothing for this concert. Mm. If people want to help, then if they're comfortable leaving a donation, we will take it. Now we have uncovered frescoes from 1623 that were lost. And so we're asking people to donate, and, and we have gotten donations sufficient to restore the frescoes that we found. This year we're getting electricity so that we can have some professional lighting. I don't speak that much Spanish, and nobody said no yet. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let's do it. And my real dream was to get this Church of San Martin. It's in Fromista. It was my dream to put concerts in there. It took me 11 years, and we're in there. And it is mind-blowing. But I do need to say something about the artists. It's the highest order of classical guitar. It's not flamenco. It's not tango. These are classical works, mostly Spanish works or new works that are appropriate for religious spaces. But we have the faculty from the Mozarteum, Royal Conservatory of the Netherlands, Texas A&M University, University of Washington, Seattle, Washington, University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee with Rene Izquierdo, who was the first guitarist who believed in this project and came and did it. Uh, we have some of the best composers in the world composing works for this project. Jorge Morel. We had a brilliant guitarist from Portland State University. He's retired now, Brian Johansson. He came and spent four days here, and he's one of these mathematical, like, number, like, whiz guys. And he sent us, he said, I'm going to go back to Madrid. I'm going to write this after I get there when I have the impression. 
and it's going to include my arrival, my time on the Camino, and my departure. He sent us 31 variations of the church bells that he heard in our province, arranged for guitar, <laughs> opening with flamenco music that he heard getting off the airplane in Madrid and closing with some other classical Spanish piece that he heard getting onto the plane. Just This isn't great work. This is brilliant work. Uh, so these compositions are of a very high quality. Jorge Morel, one of the greatest composers uh, of the 20th century, who's still very much alive, wrote a two-movement work describing in musical terms an interaction between two pilgrims walking together all the way to Santiago. And the, and the work contains church bells and good times and sunrises and sunsets and storms and, and, and the final arrival in the cathedral in Santiago. It's, it's an enormous work. We have someone coming next year to compose variations on the Cantigas of Santa Maria, which were written in Serga, which is one of the churches. Uh, that's in our series. So he's actually going to come and do his composing in that church where in the 12th century some of the earliest Western music was ever written. So this is high-end level stuff. How can pilgrims who are interested in potentially attending one of these concerts find out more? What's your schedule? Our formal schedule runs from the 1st of June to the 1st of October. That makes it the longest and largest guitar concert program in the world. And all the concerts, almost all the concerts, are at 7 p.m. So every Wednesday in Fromista, every Friday and Saturday in Carrion de los Condes. That makes it like a weekend thing. And Carrion is the halfway point of the Camino, and it's a real tough part of the Camino. Why not take your rest and recovery day in Carrion? They have a giant municipal swimming pool, they got a river with trout in it, which means it's cool. Why not cool your heels in Carillon? By the way, we have two modern art museums, two historical museums, the official library of the Camino de Santiago. We got some of the best food in the north of Spain. And we've got concerts Friday and Saturday nights that are completely free. Why wouldn't somebody want to take a rest day here? We have a couple of supplemental concerts, June, July, and August. And the last Sunday of every month, there's a concert in Via, Via Alcazar de Surga. We call it Via Surga here. And that's at 7 p.m. And in the little tiny village of Moratinos, we have a Sunday morning concert, the third Sunday of June, July, and August. Very, very low-key. Actually, we have cocktails with the mayor in the town hall after the concert. So people who uh, appreciate that the Camino could never exist in the United States are, are especially invited to that concert because it just is reflective of how beautiful and stress-free this, this kind, of, kind of place is. We are doing something new this year, the little tiny albergue in San Anton which is just east of Castro Jerez, which is a marvel. We are going to be doing a number of special concerts there that are not on our regular schedule. We're going to do some during the Perseid meteor shower. So the pilgrims can lay on the ground and look at the meteors while the candlelight concert is going. So when we do a concert, we put signs on the Camino where nobody would miss it, unless they were on a tour bus. Most of the concerts, we try to put the signs right on the Camino next to the road so that nobody could possibly miss it. And we place them there at 8 p.m. the night before. So, concert, 7 p.m., boy, it's hard to miss. While this episode has focused on more secular musical expressions, it's worth noting that some of the greatest musical experiences on the Camino come courtesy of the sacred. Indeed, past podcast episodes have referenced many of the, these opportunities. The singing nuns of Moissac, France, and Carillon de los Condes, the incredible organist of Conque, and the sing-along of Voltrea in the Pilgrim Hostel. 
I fondly recall the singing in monasteries along the Norte, in Zanaruza, in Cobreses, in San Salvador de Valdedios. The most famous stop requires a short detour from the Camino Frances, traveling south from Burgos to Santo Domingo de Silos, where the monks responsible for the popular Gregorian chants reside. The conch organist in particular sticks in my memory, and we'll end with that today, courtesy of a recording by Ollie on YouTube. Just search for conch organ music. Thanks to Ollie for sharing, and many thanks as well to my guests today. Ellen Waterston's work can be found at writingranch.com, and more information on the upcoming world premiere of the opera Via Lactea can be found at towertheater.org. Dane Johansson's m- film can be found at walktofistera.com, and you can learn more about Frederick's concerts in the Meseta this summer at CaminoArtes.org. Thanks to all of you for listening. Get in touch at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or on our new Facebook page, facebook.com slash CaminoPodcast. Take care and talk to you soon.